celebration of the living Lord. The last few Sundays we've been doing some soul searching with regard to faith as it is presented in chapters 10, 11, and 12 of Hebrews. We said that there are three categories of religious faith. There is saving faith, which is conversion. There is doctrinal faith, which are the truths that Christians live by. And there is practical faith, which is trusting God to, to take care of my life, even in the midst of the most difficult trials or circumstances. Last Sunday we took chapters, chapter 11, verses 1 through 6, and just kind of wrapped about what those verses teach about faith. We said that faith involves assurance and conviction that faith is always related to future things, that faith has as its object the unseen, that faith is basic to pleasing God, and that faith is believing that God is, and that He is a rewarder of those who seek Him. But can your faith survive misfortune? I mean. Do you have a faith that endures? Most of us might have what we call, might call a, a kind of a fair weather faith. Um, a little rain and the colors run, a touch of strain and it snaps. Oh, we do pretty well as long as things operate on an even keel, but you let life, the moment life turns bitter, the moment we encounter the slings and arrows of an outrageous fortune, that faith begins to waver or gives way altogether. It just can't stand the shock of adversity. My faith looks up to Thee, O Lord, as, until the lights go out or until the bills are due and I have no money to pay and I get all excited and frustrated and, and anxious. My faith looks up to Thee, Lord, until my spouse runs away or some trial comes. What about a faith that endures? There's a kind of a little wisp of faith that most of us have. Um, it's kind of like running the 50-yard dash, you know. It doesn't take much endurance to run the 50-yard dash. It's over in five seconds. And so if the trial just lasts about ten minutes or ten days or even ten months, my faith can encounter that and endure that. But what if the trouble never goes away? And what if the trials just keep on lingering? And what if the trouble just keeps on bothering? We need a faith that endures. You have on your lap there in this passage of Scripture one of the most remarkable records of faith that has ever been written. It has been called the roll call of the faithful. It's been called faith's hall of fame. It's one of the most remarkable statements about faith that endures you will find anywhere. And I want us to do like we did last Sunday. I want us to just kind of pretend that we're sitting around a conference table and we're just going to rap a little bit about what faith that endures is really like. The first thing this passage teaches us about faith is this, that you don't have to be perfect, nor do you have to come from a perfect background to be classified as a person of faith. 
I imagine when you read this passage, what you think about first is this. Well, these, these are biblical characters. These are heroes of God. I mean, these are exceptions. And, and for my life to try to relate my life to these people that are written in this passage of Scripture, there's no way that my life can correlate with theirs. These are heroes of God. But wait a minute. There are no halos around the heads of these people. And there are no sinless lives found in this passage of Scripture. These are just ordinary folks, just like you and me. People who have the same kinds of doubts and the same struggles with temptations that you and I have. And that's comforting because I'm hearing some of you think as we talk about faith, thoughts like these. Well, you know, to have this kind of faith, you've got to be a super saint. I mean, at least you've got to be called to the ministry or to mission field, and I'm neither. I'm just a businessman or a teacher or a laborer. I can't relate to this kind of thing. Let's just take a look at these people who are listed here. There is Noah. Noah really in the beginning was not a preacher. Verse 7 talks about him. As a matter of fact, he was a farmer who got into the construction business, the shipbuilding business for about 120 years. But Noah certainly wasn't a perfect man. He had a drinking problem, as a matter of fact. And when the flood ceased and the ark was opened, Noah got outside and got stone drunk and was lying in nakedness and brought shame to himself, to his sons. And there's Abraham, who was really a businessman, and he didn't come from a very good background. His parents were pagans, and they lived in the earth, Chaldees, and they were heathens. And the kind of environment that this man grew up in was a pagan environment, and his parents had no theological concept of the true God at all. And Abraham certainly had a character flaw. He was a liar. And one time he told a lie to save his own skin and even got his wife into trouble. He'd rather have her neck on the block than his. Perfect? Not on your life. And there was Sarah, and she was a homemaker. And when God told her that she was going to have a child at the age of 90, she laughed, and so would you. And I can just hear her saying, I'm going to have a baby at age 90. Why well, can't even fix breakfast for myself? And there's Jacob, and he was a, he was a crook. He, he had the gift of deception. He was a perfect con man. And if he, was, if he lived in our day, he would be involved in all kinds of scams. If you got around this man, you better put your hand on your pocketbook. Perfect, not on your life. A deceiver. And there was Moses. And Moses was a murderer. He took the law in his own hands, and he killed a man. And he tried to cover up his crime, and he buried him in the sand. Then he became a fugitive from justice and fled to the backside of the desert. And there he spent 40 years in obscurity. And it was 80 years before this man's name ever got in lights as, a, as far as spiritual things were concerned. And then there is in verse 31 the name Rahab the harlot. What a strange place for her name to be found. You would expect this woman's name to be found in the little black books that some men carried around in their vest pockets. But in this book 
and on this page and, in, and, and listed in the context with these names, that sure seems unlikely, doesn't, doesn't it? The fact of the matter is, these people were not perfect. They were ordinary folks who came from ordinary environments, but at a point of time in their life, they just trusted God, and they learned to lean on Him, and they depended on Him. And at that point of time in their life, out of faith, they operated. The second thing this passage teaches is this, that whenever you begin to live a dependent life, upon faith in God, the odds are always overwhelmingly against you. I'm here to tell you this morning that learning how to trust God is learning how to trust Him when the odds are overwhelmingly against you. If that were not the case, there'd be no need for faith. For example, running down the list again, there's Noah and he's out there building that barge on dry land, and there's never been rainfall before. Did you know that? The Genesis account says that every morning God just watered the ground with the dew, and there'd never been rainfall. And I can imagine Noah's friends coming to him and saying, Noah, what are you doing? And I'm building a boat. What for? He said, there's going to be a flood. What's a flood? And Noah said, there's going, to be a, there's going to be rainfall from heaven for 40 days and 40 nights. And, he's, and, the, and the friend said, what's rainfall? You know what the odds would be against that ever happening? The odds are astronomical. And there's Abraham, and the Scripture says that Abraham went out not knowing where he was going. And Halford Luckock has a marvelous sermon on this called Marching Off the Map. And he talks about in the ancient times, topographers didn't have maps that covered the whole world. They'd never been there before. And so he said oftentimes they'd set out in their ships and they'd literally just sail off the map, you know, that they had. And he has this sermon on, on Abraham's faith entitled Marching Off the Map. Can you just see him coming in to Sarah one day and says, Sarah, we're moving. Where to? I don't know. What are we going? I've done that before. I can tell you that, that makes your wife's hair turn gray. Where are we going? I don't know. What are we going to do? I don't know. And so he ordered out the global van line truck, you know, and it's backed up against the back of the, of the house, and the neighbors come over. Are you moving? He said, yeah, we sold our house. Where are you going? We don't know. And I can just imagine the neighbors kind of looking at each other and it just kind of confirms their feeling about this man. He's just a little bit goofy to begin with, you know. And so they just kind of keep up the conversation to Sarah. Well, has Abraham been transferred? Has he got a job where he's going? No, he doesn't know what he's going to do. You know who's going to get the, the greatest grief out of all of this? The driver of that moving van. That's the guy that's going to get the greatest grief. He don't know where he's going, neither do they. Can you imagine the odds of that ever happening to anybody? The odds are overwhelmingly against that. And there's Sarah who hasn't, who hasn't a child and she's 90 years of age and that's fantastic that she's going to be able to give birth at age 90 but the thing that compounds the impossibility of that was something we've always forgotten. Her womb was barren. And all of her adult life, she's tried to have a baby. So not only is she going to have a baby at age 90, she's going to have a baby when she's never been able to have one in, the all, in the, all of her adult life that she's tried. What are the odds against that? The odds are overwhelmingly against it. 
And if you want to skip on down to verse 29, there's that story about crossing over the Red Sea. Water's just not, uh, you know, that's just not made to, to part. A few years ago, we went out to Universal Studios in Hollywood and they took us down, down on that little tour and showed us how they parted the water in that, in that movie, The Ten Commandments. There's just a little pond out there and they have this device and they showed us how through uh, trick photography and, 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 and maneuvering of the, of the equipment they had that they showed that magnificent scene of the Red Sea, you know, just parting and, 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 and Moses and all the people going across. And everybody's just ooh and ah. And I thought to myself, what if they'd been there when it really happened, you know? What if they'd seen it then? And so they marched down off the top of that little knoll down into the Red Sea. And Moses said to Aaron, hold that, let's go on, cross it. And Aaron said, hey, Moses, there's water down there. And he said, stick out the rod. And so they did. And the seas parted. And when they started to cross, did they get wet? Not on your life. They got in a dust storm, believe it or not, for the bottom of that sea had turned to dry ground. What are the odds of that happening? The odds are astronomically against that. And then on the next verse following that, verse 30 is the story of, of the... Uh, of Joshua and his men marching around the walls of Jericho. And I can just see that happening. My mind just runs away with me when I see that. These Hebrews, these Israelis walking around that Canaanite, Canaanite walls of Jericho and the guard upstairs looking down and he said, what are you folks doing down there? He said, we're going to level the walls of this place. Oh, you're going to level the walls. How are you going to do it? Where's your battering ram? We're just going to shout to God. Sure you are. Hey, Fred, come look at these idiots down here. They, they're gonna, they think they're going to level the walls by shouting to God. You just hang around, baby. We're going to lay the walls flat. And they walked around seven times and shouted to God. And the walls came down, wall-to-wall -wall walls. And what are the odds of that happening? The odds are overwhelmingly against that. For any time you are challenged to live by faith, I'm here to tell you, you're challenged to do that which is humanly impossible to do. Third thing this verse teaches, this passage teaches is, is this. That the outcome of faith is not always pleasant. Now I want you to pick your New Testament up there and look at verse 32 and follow with me as I read. And what more shall I say? What else can I say? For time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, Barak, Abarak, Samson, Jephthah of David, and Samuel and the prophets who by faith conquered kingdoms, perform acts of righteousness, obtain promises, shut the mouths of lions, quench the power of fire, escape the edge of the sword from weakness, were made strong, mighty, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by the resurrection. Listen to this fantastic story. And others were tortured, not accepting their release in order that they might obtain a better resurrection. Notice that semicolon there. Get a hold of that at the end of verse 35. For never has there ever been a semicolon that taught so much as that one. For look at it. And others, look, there's just a shift all of a sudden. And others experienced mockings and scourgings. Yes, chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were tempted. They were put to death with a sword. They went about in sheepskin and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated. Men of whom the world was not worthy. 
wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground, all of these having gained approval through their faith. Now what does he say there? What a, what a tremendous balance. He's saying that not all the time does your faith in God turn out pleasant. I don't want you to go away from here today thinking you just trust God and you got the world by the tail. We're not handing out rosy colored glasses here at the altar this morning. We're not going to suggest that you can just trust God and you don't have to work, you know, and the payment for that bill come due on the day it's due. I'm not suggesting that at all. It may not happen like that, but I can promise you this, God will give you the power and grace to hang in there when it doesn't. And you can trust God and that loved one may linger in illness and may never get well. But I can tell you, trusting God will give you the grace and the power to hang in there victoriously when He doesn't get well. For faith in God does not always change the circumstances like we want them changed, but faith in God always changes us. And so we must not tie our faith to presumptions about God. I know some Christians who have become spiritual casualties because they tied, they, they made their faith dependent upon God acting toward them in a certain way. And when He didn't, they just threw aside their faith. You remember that ancient story of the Hebrew young men? Nebuchadnezzar the king told them that if they did not bow down to the golden image, they would be persecuted. This is what they, how they responded. They said, our God is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and He's able, O King, to deliver us out of your hand. But if He doesn't, we still will not bow down to your image nor worship your gods. Amen. What they said was this, we believe our God can perform a miracle and change the circumstances in our life and we believe He will. But if He doesn't, whether He does or not, we're still going to remain loyal subjects to Him to the end. We're not going to betray or deny Him simply because things didn't turn out like we counted on them to turn out. And that's faith. It's trusting God regardless. It's committing one's life to God without reservation. It's, stop, it's, it's not saying... I'll trust you, Lord, if this or that happens. It's saying, I'll trust you, Lord, whatever happens. That's the kind of faith that endures. Now, what is the, kind, what is the result of that kind of faith from this passage? Two things are the result of that kind of faith. The first is found in verse 6. It says that with that kind of faith you can please God. Now we talked about that a lot, a lot last Sunday and we're not going to deal with that. I want us to notice the second result of that faith and it's found in verse 16 and it says, Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God. Now when a person learns to just trust God regardless, just depend on God, just lean on the Lord, just believe Him, he does two things are the result. He pleases God and he honors God. He's not ashamed to be called their God. And the word means in the Greek, he is not ashamed to be linked with them in life. Oh, I like that. 
friend of ours was telling us not too long ago they have a little child that's in, in preschool and they were in this kindergarten uh, play and this kid of theirs was just acting. Boy, he was really having a time. He was really acting up. He was acting like, you know, Dennis the Menace right there in front of everybody. And she said, I was just kind of sitting over there, you know, just embarrassed. There my kid was, just cutting up and just acting crazy. And she said, I heard these two ladies behind me saying, wonder whose kid that is. I wonder whose kid that is. And she said, boy, I wasn't about to turn around and say, that's my kid. You know? So I, I wasn't ashamed of him, but I was embarrassed about him in that situation. And she said, I was just scared to death that he'd come running up to me before I could get out of there you know, and, 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 I, and, and give me away to those folk. And God said, you know, when you learn to trust me and you just live dependent upon me and you just walk by faith and you dare the impossible, Got any rivers you think are uncrossable? Got any mountains you can't tunnel through? God specializes in the things thought impossible. He can do what no power can do. And you just begin to lean on God to do that which is humanly impossible. God says, man, I'm not ashamed to link my life up with His. I'm not ashamed to be called His God. He's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And the, and the sentence doesn't end there. He's the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Gerald and Tim and Ed and Charlie and Bob and Colin. He's, he links his life up with us. Now I want to give you a verse of Scripture. You're saying this is so close to the end of the, of the, of the sermon. That's just what you think. This is so close to the end, I won't turn. I want you to turn to this verse of Scripture. It's 2 Chronicles. Now, don't let your wife turn and you look on with her. You turn, guys. I want to show you a verse of Scripture. It's 2 Chronicles chapter 16, verse 9. Chronicles is over there in the Old Testament, right after Kings, right after Samuel, right after Joshua. Just find it, take a left, take a right out of the Old Testament and go to chapter... 16, verse 9. Verse 9 of chapter 16 reads like this. For the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth that He may strongly support those whose heart is completely His. I believe it's the Berkeley translation that has it like this. God's eyes flash back and forth to find those He might bless whose hearts are His. You know what God wants to do? He wants to link His life up with yours and just bless your life over and over and over again with things that are unexplainable. And you know how He does it? When you learn to depend on Him and trust Him and believe. When at a point of time, you just act on faith. Now I've asked God to help me to, to give a handle on which we can hang this sermon. And I want to do it with a kind of a simple acrostic, then we're through. You know the word faith. Let's take those five letters. There's F. That means finances. Got it in there, didn't I? Have you learned to trust God with your finances? I mean, does God get His part? Does He really? Have you learned just to live in the area of finances 
in dependence upon God? Have you learned to do that? Let me give you a perfect illustration of that that happened in this church. Now, I want you to wake up and hear this. Last spring, when we began to think about taking a mission trip, we decided that we would go to Philadelphia on this mission trip with the young people. We're going to fly up there and spend a week in Philadelphia. And we decided that instead of, you know, of uh, having the means of raising the money that we've always done where we've uh, you know, sold cakes and, uh, and those kind of things which are good but not best, we decided that we would just trust God to provide the means for that trip. And He did. And it's probably the greatest spiritual experience that our young people have ever had. Now, we probably have had more fun before, but it was a tremendous trip and had a tremendous spiritual impact and still is. About a month after we got back home, I got this call from an attorney in, 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 in uh, Pennsylvania. He said, a lady who, um, who has died in our little city has left your church. Now, this is in Pennsylvania. Has left a church in Durant, Oklahoma, uh, some money in her will. If you can prove that she was a member of your church, then you will have this inheritance. Well, I got to check and, and, and found out that she was a member here in the early 30s and moved away and was gone for 50 years. Some of the older members of our church remembered her, and we did find her name on one little piece of paper that indicated she was a member of our church. And we sent all of that with some, uh, with some uh, uh, legal documents to uh, statements that we'd taken from people up there to confirm and affirm her church membership. Now this lady, I, I, I can't even remember her last name, Eva, what was her name? You remember what her name? She died in the, she died about, uh, in the summertime. She was a member here in the 30s. From, from Pennsylvania, hang on to that, will you? Now that thing hasn't been, uh, uh, hasn't, been a com hasn't been worked out in court yet, but I talked to the attorney last week it's just a matter of a few days and some problems to be worked out. And I said, sir, can you tell me how much that, uh, the inheritance part for our church would be? And he said, it will be a minimum of $10,000. And I got on the intercom and I called LaJoy and I said, LaJoy, can you tell me how much that trip cost our church to Pennsylvania? Just kind of a ballpark figure. And she came back and said, about $10,000. Have you learned to trust God in the area of your finances? There's finances. There is attitude. You see, if you don't live with a faith attitude, if you, if you build your attitude of life only on that which you see around you, you get bitter and angry and hurt. You live by faith and your attitude operates out of faith. There's I... Ideas. Ask God to give you faith-filled ideas. Ask Him to make you people of vision to be able to see the mountains full of the horses of God and the chariots. Ask Him to give you vision to see beyond what, what others can see directly at hand so that our church might be a dynamic church of faith. There's T, trials. That's just what we've been talking about throughout this message. There is H, which is the home. 
Parents, begin to give your children that legacy of faith. Begin to leave them a legacy of faith. By that I mean begin to teach them by your own precept and by your own instruction and your own example how to live by faith, how to trust God, how to depend on Him. Let them see in your life that you're not filled with anxiety. You're just learning to leave it all up to God. I will not doubt, though all my ships at sea come, broke, come drifting home with broken masts and sails, I shall believe the hand that never fails. From seeming evil worketh good to me. And though I weep because those sails are battered, still will I cry while my best hopes lie shattered. I trust in Thee. I will not doubt, though all my prayers return unanswered from the still white realm above. I shall believe it is an all-wise love which has refused those things for which I yearn. And though at times I cannot keep from grieving, yet the pure ardor of my fixed believing undimmed shall burn. I will not doubt, though sorrows fall like rain and troubles swarm like bees around a hive, I shall believe the heights for which I strive are only reached by anguish and by pain. And though I groan and tremble with my losses, yet I shall see through the severest crosses the greater gain. I will not doubt, well anchored in the faith, like some staunch ship my soul braves every gale, so strong its courage that it will not fail to breast the might unknown sea of death. Oh, may I cry when body parts with spirit, I do not doubt so listening worlds may hear it with my final breath. Will you bow your heads? Heavenly Father, help us to know this morning, help us to believe that we don't have to be super saints to walk by faith. And help us to know that we are we are recognizing that anything that we must faith is something that's impossible in our strength. And help us to know, Father, that you just want us to trust regardless of the outcome. And I pray this morning, Father, that we truly shall be the people of faith who walk by faith and not by sight so that we might please you, so you would not be ashamed to call us your God. And I pray this morning for those of us who need to make decisions in this service, give us faith and courage in Jesus' name. Now we have three invitations. Look this way, if you will. First invitation is for you to come this morning placing your faith in Jesus Christ. This is saving faith. If you'll believe with your heart that God raised Him from the dead, if you'll confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you'll be saved.
Scripture says, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Saving faith means trusting Jesus and Jesus only for your salvation. It means transferring your trust over to Him, Jesus our Lord. Just like sitting down in that chair right there, exercising faith in it. Will you come trusting Christ this morning? I'm not saying come to be baptized or to join the church or to be a Baptist. Come trusting Jesus, Jesus only. The second invitation this morning is for you to come and place your life here because God in His Spirit has spoken for you to place your fellowship, your life in this fellowship. And you say, I want to be obedient to God. I want to trust His leadership and I want to respond. And the other invitation is for you to come to say, Pastor, I just want to recommit myself to walk by faith in God, just to trust Him, only trust Him. It is so sweet to trust in Jesus. We'll ask you to do that as we stand in our